Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. But I want to talk about, introduce the Ten Commandments. A lot of controversy today about the Ten Commandments, but I want us to examine them because they're important. We are, we are New Testament believers. We're under grace. We're not under the law. But, but the law still can play a part and should play a part in our lives. Now, the first thing you have to understand, this is, this, this should, you would think that the Ten Commandments, that would be simple. There's ten of them, except it's not nearly that simple. Uh, in actuality, there, there are somewhere around, and it depends on how people count, there are at least a little over 600. I've seen 613, 614, 611, different people count them differently. But there are 600 or, or more laws written in the Old Testament. And what we call the Ten Commandments is, they call it the Decalogue. It's just a summation of those, the most important. But even those ten, we can't agree on what they are. The Jews have, have a set of, and, and all of this comes from the, the, the Ten Commandments, come primarily out of Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 34, and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And depending on how you break the thoughts, where you break the, the thoughts and the statements or the commands, you, can, you will come up with different lists. The Jews, for instance, if you go to Exodus, 20 verse 1 and 2 it says this God spoke all these words saying I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage and then it follows on with what we would consider the rest of the first commandment Jews will break that first that second verse out as the first commandment and then the second one starts we would include it as part of as Protestants and, and even in the Protestants, the, the, the Catholics will break those up and, and include different things and separate different things. When you really look at it, when you look at all of the traditions from Jewish and all of the different Protestant traditions, there are actually 14 separate statements that make up our Ten Commandments. They, pretty much everyone, and, and most scholars agree with this, Pretty much every group of people has, has grouped them in some way to come up with 10 to help in memorization. That's the reason it's 10. Not anything, it's not inspired, it, it's, not, um, it's not fixed. Because keep in mind, James said, this is in, in James 2.10, whoever shall keep the whole law, that's talking about all 600 plus laws, and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all. So it, it's not, first of all, we're never going to be able to keep the law. You can't. It's impossible. No one has ever done it with the exception of Jesus. No one ever will do it. He was the only one. But we, we can still learn some things from it. And it, the reason I say that, that those 14 statements, some of them are statements of fact, some of them are commands that we need to obey, the, the fact that I can say those are not inspired and they're not fixed, Paul said it, <clears throat> excuse me, Romans 13, verse 8 and 10, 
in, in summing up his, his letter to, to the Roman church. In verse 8, he starts, he says, no, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. If there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10 is is the summation of all of that. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul sums it all up into one statement. Love does no harm to his neighbor. That is the entire law summed up in one quick sentence. Even Jesus, in in the Sermon on the Mount, he um, listed five of the ten. He didn't list the other five. But even when in in Matthew 22, the, the Pharisees, and they came as a setting a trap, which is a dangerous thing to do with Jesus, uh, it's like um, the Roadrunner cartoon. Roadrunner or the, the coyote was constantly setting traps for Roadrunner, and he always got caught in his own trap. Every person that tried to trap Jesus committed the um, coyote fallacy. They got caught in their own trap. Jesus would turn it on them. But in, in Matthew 22, in verse 36, this is where they set the trap. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? You got 613, 14 to choose from. Tell us which one's the most important. And and I would would imagine if you would have gotten 25 different Jewish teachers of the law together and asked them that question, you'd have gotten 25 different answers. This is how Jesus answered it. He said, Jesus said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments hang all the law on the prophets. So Jesus summed it all up in with the two. If you can just walk out these two, then you've done them all. So the, the, I said all that to say, you know, when I say there's 14, sometimes that when, when you've been raised, there's 10, there's 10. I mean, how many places, how many arguments, lawsuits have we had over placing 10 commandments in the public square? Well, it's what our Constitution is based on. We ought to be able to post the Ten Commandments. But, but, and, and they are a very good guide to our moral behavior. It's what God gave to the Jews to guide the nation. But he, he really gave them for a reason other than what the obvious reason that this is a guide for our lives. Because if you ask, and, and, and hopefully you know better than this, but if I've asked this question in the past, and it's been a question that gets asked a lot amongst theological circles, how did Old Testament saints get saved versus New Testament saints? And a lot of people, a lot of people who will self-identify as Christians. Now remember, I think it was the Barna Group did a survey of Americans and asked, are you a Christian? Are you not a Christian? And 80% of the population of the United States identified, self-identified as Christians, which sounds great. 
But then when you, they decided maybe we need to dig a little deeper, and they went to the, that 80% and gave them a questionnaire and said, what of these statements do you agree with? And I don't remember what the statements were, but basically it was, um, it, it was along the lines of, is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus the only way to salvation? Very theologically pointed questions. And out of the 80% that said they were Christians, only 3% could agree with those statements. Which means, out of the population of the United States, when you're talking true Christianity, because if you, if you don't declare that Jesus is the Son of God, and you don't depend on Him and His sacrifice alone, you're not saved. It's just that plain. You have to acknowledge that God is God, and that Jesus is God, and that his sacrifice is why you are part of God's family. It's nothing that you did. It's not keeping the law. The Jews did not get saved by keeping the law. We know that because Paul, in the book of Romans, said no one has ever kept the law. If no one's ever kept it, then no one could get saved by it. But James or, or Paul also said in, in Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law proves to you that you can't keep the law, and therefore it proves to you, hopefully, that you are in need of a Savior. Number one problem that, that a lot of, of, of problems, uh, and I'll use um, our, our friend, brother, who comes, Mark um, Buchanan. Is that right, Buchanan? Um, he has cancer on his kidney. It, it, at this point, it's, it hasn't spread. It's just in the kidney. They will be able to go in, remove that kidney, take it out, and he will be cancer-free. Now, I know people, I've dealt with them, that suspected that they had, might have cancer in their body. And you would, I would talk to them and say, go to the doctor, have some tests run. Oh, no. Now, what if I go and the tests say I've got cancer? And my, I, you just want to grab your head and say, no. If you have cancer, you have cancer. The tests don't give you cancer. They just tell you you have it. And then you can figure out, do you have medical options? You can hit your knees and start praying, start believing God's healing power is going to be manifest in you. The test don't give you the disease. They just tell you what you're dealing with physically. The law does not um, give you sin. The law is holy. It's righteous. But it points out how you are a failure to live up to that righteousness. So it plays a, it plays a huge role in our lives. Deuteronomy chapter 5, we just read it a second ago. With the first law, it, in, in, in verse 33, it says, You shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? That you may live and that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. There are rewards for pursuing the law. Even if you pursue it... Um, you don't pursue it perfectly. 
If you, if you, when you try to follow the law and make it a lifestyle, your life will be more productive even when you fail at it. It's the old, old adage, um, <clears throat> shoot for the moon, you may get halfway there. Shoot for nothing, you'll make it every time. I learned years ago, and if you've never played racquetball, this, this doesn't make much sense, but I, w- I had it came to racquetball as, a, as an adult, and I would play, and I was playing against guys that had been playing for years, which, man, that'll, that'll break your ego real quick, because they'll just beat you like a drum, because the guys I played with, they were competitive. But I would see them get shots, and I would think, how do they do that? And they would make shots on me, and, and I'd get halfway, and I would realize, I, I'm not going to get to that ball. So I'd quit. And after a while, it dawned on me, I'm giving up on shots. I might as well at least, I mean, I'm only there for one reason. I'm never going to be a great bracketball player, but I'm getting a lot of exercise. It was good exercise, too. So I made the decision, I'm going to try to get to every shot they hit, no matter whether it's, I, I have any possibility or not. And you know what I found? When I made the effort, I made about it, I got to about 80% of those shots that I thought mentally, I can't get there. Failing to try, I missed them all. But when I tried, I got about 80, even if it was 50%, that's better than none. The law works the same way in our natural lives. It is a good guide, and it will, it will have rewards with it. I'm going to go with the Jewish enumeration of the law in Exodus 20. And I didn't include all of it in my notes, so let me look it up so I can read it. Exodus 20 and, and, and Deuteronomy 5 probably give the clearest delineation of all this. Exodus 34 will, and we're going to look at one passage in Exodus 34 because it expands on this first one. But in in Exodus 20, starting in verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. In the Protestant faith, we will include a lot of of lists that you will see will only have verse 2 or excuse me, verse 3, as the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. A lot of times you will see 2 and 3 grouped together. In the Jewish listing, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. That stands alone as the very first commandment. And I like that for this reason. It sets the principle... And first principles are always important. It sets the principle that you see in the very first words of the, of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. Four little words. In the beginning, God. It sets it right up front. This is not about me. This is not about mine. This is not about anything other than God. This whole list centers on the personhood, the the nature of God and what He wants us to do and how He wants us to live. In fact, if if you go over to Exodus 34, and I'm going to start in about verse um, 13. 
This is where, if you remember, when, Mount, when, when Moses went up on Mount Moriah, God wrote out the Ten Commandments with his own hand. And Moses came down, but while he had been up there getting the commandments, when he came down, the children of Israel had made an idol, and they were playing the harlot with the idol, and Moses, in a fit of anger, literally played out what they had done. They didn't even have, they just knew Moses was on the mountain meeting with God. They hadn't even seen the commandments, and they're already breaking the commandments. So Moses quite literally broke the commandments in front of them. It was the first illustrated sermon. But later, in, in Exodus chapter 34, Moses went, God said, you need to come back up here. We need to get these down. You need to know these. So he, Moses went back up, and, and chapter 34 is the account of God uh, bringing the, the law back to, um, to Moses and, and to the... Um, um, to the children of Israel. Now, if you, if you look at, at, at and I'm, I'm not going to jump back there, but in, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, if you look at what would be our second commandment, it says, Making, make no graven image. Ex, or chapter 34, verse 17 would list that, you shall make no molded gods for yourself. But before that, from 13 through 17... God breaks out and gives you an expanded view of verse 2. Let me just read it again. I'm the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now chapter 34 is going to expand that thought. Because let's face it, if you could ever get a revelation of that, you could write, you could write a thousand volumes on that one verse and never plunge you know, plumb the entire depths of that, of that, what that verse has to offer. But it does a little bit here in, in Exodus 34. So let's start in um, verse 12. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. So God is saying, you need to know that I'm the Lord your God, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And he's expanding on bringing them out of slavery. He said, I want you to be careful. Don't make covenants with the people of the land you're going into, because it will be a snare to you. You will put yourself back in slavery. Verse 13, but you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God right there gives us one of His names and tells us what that name means. He says, my name is Jealous because I am jealous. He said, I stand in a club of one. There's nobody else like me. And don't you dare think that these other nations who have gods, that their gods are even, even a little bit comparable to me. That's, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. That's what he's saying here. Verse 15. 
Keep in mind that my name is Jealous and I'm a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and make sacrifice to their gods and one of them invites you and you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of his daughters for your sons and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and make your sons play the harlot with their gods. You shall make no molded gods for yourselves. He's basically, this whole thing is, is expanding on this statement, I'm the Lord your God. Don't get involved with these. That's part of the reason out of those 613 laws that, that God gave Moses, a big part of those laws were the dietary laws. And despite what the food Nazis will tell you today, God did not give those dietary laws because that's the healthy way to eat. He gave the dietary laws for the very reason he just said in Exodus 34, to keep them from eating with pagans and consuming the, the food that they had, had sacrificed to altars because if they did that, the, the feasts that these pagans had would, would eventually become part of, of a big party to worship our God. So it's like, I can't eat your food, so I can't partake of your ceremony. I have to keep myself separate. It's that simple. That's why the dietary laws, and that's why when, when, when Jesus resurrected, he came to Peter and, and lowered, gave him the image of, the, of all of the unclean animals being lowered and told Peter, go, take and eat. And Peter said, Lord, I don't eat those things. The law says not to. And he said, look, what I've called clean, don't you call unclean. Now, in part, that was a metaphor for Peter to realize that the Gentiles, who they called unclean, were no longer unclean. Now, it wasn't that they weren't unclean, but they were no more unclean than the Jews were because the Jews didn't keep the law that they accused the Gentiles of breaking. Nobody kept the law. So go back to that original question. How did Old Testament saints get saved? We'll go to Hebrews 11 and read it. It says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. They got saved by faith in Almighty God, either the faith of the Messiah to come if they lived after that started being revealed, or just faith in, in the one God. God revealed Himself to men and women. And said, I am God, and if they exercised faith in it, they could get saved. They were saved. They had a promise of salvation to come. Where we look back on Jesus, and we have an accomplished salvation, because He's already come, and lived, and died, and resurrected. That's why we, as the church, are, are in a better position than the Old Testament saints. They never got born again. They couldn't be born again, because Jesus hadn't conquered death and hell yet. Now, what is the, the point here? The point is, until we start with God, Hebrews 11.6, New King James, without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And I've taught before, that word there, diligently, isn't nose to the grindstone, work hard, work hard, work hard, work hard. That word diligently means eagerly. The picture is of a little kid that you tell him, we're going to go get ice cream. 
and then you get a little delayed, and you can see them bouncing. They're anxious. I want it. I want it now. You said I could get it, and they're just so ready to go. And I mean, they're, you know, if you pointed them in the right direction, just let them go, they could outrun your car there. That's what, what the writer of Hebrews, you need to be so excited that you believe God is. You believe there's a God. Not only do you believe there's a God, you believe He is out to bless you. And you are eagerly seeking a relationship with Him. That's what it's all about. I love, and and we don't have these, so let me just read them to you. The Passion Translation of Hebrews 11.6. Without faith living within us, it would be impossible to please God. For we come to God in faith knowing that God is real and that God rewards the faith of those who give all their passion and strength into seeking Him. We said, I said it last week when, when we were looking in, in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I tried to put that on the sign and it just got so long you couldn't read it. And so I kept thinking, how do you, how do you phrase that verse? How do you phrase Matthew 6.21? And it finally just dawned on me. Your heart will pursue what you treasure. It's, no more, it's, it, it's as simple as that. And what God's saying here in this first commandment, you have got to make me the center of your existence. In the beginning, God. It starts with God. It ends with God. It's God all the way through. It's God the Father through Jesus Christ for us. Because He is the center of everything. And if He's not the center then nothing else matters. That's why I think it was Paul wrote, you know, if, if, if resurrection is not possible, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If I'm just, if I'm just a, a dog, if I don't have a spirit, if I don't have an eternal part of me, then why am I not partying? Why am I not just spending all of my goods to have a good time? See, I would, it's amazing. You ask people what their goal in life is, and a lot of them will say, well, to be rich, to be successful, to be happy. Nothing wrong with those things. But that can't be your goal. So, a verse in Proverbs where it's talking about seeking wisdom. And I always get the hands mixed up, but it says in, in, in the two hands of wisdom, in, in one hand you have um, riches and wealth, the other one you have long life. And here's the catch. If you go after the riches, you miss wisdom. If you go after long life, you miss wisdom. But if you pursue wisdom, and wisdom's name is Jesus, you get the wealth and the long life with that. He is the prize. He has all of that, but if you go after the stuff, you will miss Him. But He's not the stuff. He just will bless you with the stuff. And then even better, Hebrews eleven six out of the message. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. Why? Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that He exists and that He cares enough to respond to those that seek Him. God cares about you enough that when you seek Him, He responds. 
We are, I've said it before, and it's in, it, it would works for you. You go in God's kitchen, you go to His refrigerator where everybody knows that is where you put the most important piece of art in your entire life. And you will find my picture on His refrigerator. You'll see my drawings. They're usually stick men and stick women in crayon, very poorly done, and God cherishes them. Same way, I've got some, a, a, a little notebook, and it, it is just scribbles that Tiffany did when she used to sit in church when she was maybe three, four years old, and she would see mom and dad taking notes, and she wanted a pad, and she started taking notes, and it's just nothing but crayon marks. And I'm telling you, I wouldn't trade that for all the tea in China. That is precious to me. Why? Because that's my daughter imitating her mom and dad. That's a child's heart saying, I won't be like you. Man, I've told my kids when they were growing up, you want something from me? Ask me. I will do my best to to lasso the moon and pull it down if you want it. But you tell me I'm going to do something for you. You're going to see my heels go real deep. It's like I got six-foot stilettos on, and I'm going to dig those things in. You won't pull me out of the mud. I won't budge. God is the same way. We don't command God to do anything, but we seek Him. He does say, put me in remembrance of my word. But when we come and say, Lord, you are going to do this for me because you said you would do it, that's not commanding Him. That's just saying, I trust you. I know if you said it's supposed to be mine, you want me to have it, and you will do whatever it takes to get it to me because you're not a liar. He likes that. He likes that. But if we don't have that first and foremost in our mind, I am the Lord your God. First of all, it's, it's personal. He's not just the God. He's my God. If you, don't, if you don't make him make it personal, it just doesn't count. Amen? It's the first step to that road to salvation. <clears throat> you look around at our world today, and we have a, a, a um, huge lack of morals in our country. I mean, I weep for where our country has, has fallen to. Where, where, you know, we said it a few weeks ago, when, when New York passed that law, you had hundreds and hundreds of people cheering a law that made it legal to, to destroy children moments from birth. That's not just immoral, that's perverse. And we have people celebrating perversity. The answer isn't for us to try to cram our morals down their throat. Our answer is, is for our country is to pray that they get a revelation of that first part of that first verse. God, reveal yourself as their God, the Lord God. And once someone gets a revelation that God is God, you at least get to make an honest choice. Most of what you see out there that we really look at and say that's just immoral, that's how can people think that way, they don't necessarily really think that so much as they're just trying to justify their actions so they can get away from the guilt that their actions have brought. 
When you know instinctively, I did something horrible. There's two ways of handling that. There's the godly way. You face it. Hebrews said, come boldly before the throne of grace to find grace and mercy in time of of need. When you have done something perverse, when you have done something sinful and you know it, it's time to run to God. The other response is what a lot of people do because they're under the impression God is mad at me and if I go before God, I'm going to get swatted down and swatted down hard. So they avoid God and they try to talk themselves in that my sin really wasn't sin. It's just a social construct. Man just made up these rules to control me. And I'm not going to be controlled. I'm free. No, none of us are free. If you're not born again, you're a slave to sin. If you are born again, you need to be a slave to God. Either way, there's no freedom in it. Our freedom is to serve Him. And with that service comes unbelievable blessings. And and the great part is when we serve Him and we truly become His slave, He makes us free. He says, first of all, you don't have to serve the devil in your flesh anymore. You are free to serve me. And what do you want? Dean said this for several weeks. God used the verse, God will give you the desires of your heart. That there's two sides to that coin. If you have a true desire for something, God will get it to you. But the even more important side of that is God will put desires in your heart. He will make you desire the right things. That's more important than the the first one. God, give me the desires of my heart. Make my heart desire what you desire. That's what I want. And then when I do it, if I'm desiring what he desires, I've already got him on my side. I don't have to talk him into, you know. You kind of have a useless prayer life when your prayer life consists of trying to talk God into something you want. Because you're not going to move God. But if you allow him to move you, he's already on your side. You just moved over to his side. Step one, no. He's the Lord, your God. When you come to that realization and you acknowledge that realization, God will start moving heaven and earth to get you what He wants. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCC. Indianapolis.com